Church Government in the Bible Does Scripture Teach Presbyterianism, Prelacy, Popery, or Independency? Acts 15, verse 6 Revival Review, number 13 The International Vision for the Best in Christian Literature January-February, 1991 The following is an excerpt from Volume 1 of William Cunningham's Historical Theology, a review of the principal doctrinal discussions in the Christian Church since the Apostolic Age, pages 43-47 through 47 of this two-volume set, which is published by Stillwater's Revival Books. Chapter 2, The Council of Jerusalem, Section 1, Scripture Narrative Although our review of theological discussions properly begins at the close of the Apostolic Age, yet there is one transaction recorded in the New Testament to which it may be proper to advert to from its intimate connection with the whole subsequent history and government of the Church, and with the controversies to which they have given rise, many of them continuing down to the present day. I allude to what is commonly called the Council of Jerusalem, recorded in the fifteenth chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. There has been a very great deal of discussion about the true character of this transaction and the lessons, if any, which it is fitted to suggest respecting the government of the Church in subsequent ages. Papists, prelates, and Presbyterians have usually held that it was fitted and intended to convey some instruction as to the way and manner in which the government of the Church should be permanently conducted, and have all professed to find in it something to favor their respective systems. While the Congregationalists, not being able to find in it anything to favor their views of church government, have generally contented themselves with maintaining that it does not afford any clear or certain materials for determining in what way the government of the church should be conducted in subsequent ages. Papists, finding it recorded here that Peter took a prominent part in the discussion which arose upon this occasion, adduced the narrative as a proof that he acted then, was entitled to act, and was recognized as entitled to act, as the vicar of Christ and the head of the church. Prelatists, finding that, several centuries afterwards, the notion was broached that James was appointed by the apostles bishop of Jerusalem, professed to get scriptural evidence of this fancy in the prominent part which he took in the discussion. There is not in the narrative a trace of any superiority in office or jurisdiction on the part of Peter or James, so that the substance of the popish argument is virtually this. Peter spoke first, and therefore he was superior in authority and jurisdiction to the other apostles. While the prelatic argument is, James spoke last, and gave shape to the decision of the council, and therefore he was diocesan bishop, and as such, superior in some respects even to the apostles. This, of course, is sheer trifling, and the only question of real importance or difficulty connected with this matter lies between the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists or Independents. The Congregationalists usually contend that this transaction was so peculiar and extraordinary as to afford no pattern or precedent for the disposal of theological controversies and the regulation of ecclesiastical affairs in subsequent ages and in ordinary circumstances. While the Presbyterians deny this and allege that it affords a warrant for the general substance of some of the leading features of Presbyterian Church government. The question whether or not the transaction was so peculiar and extraordinary as to afford no model or precedent for the subsequent government of the Church is virtually identical with this one. Whether the Apostles acted in this matter as inspired and infallible expounders of the will of God, or simply as the ordinary office-bearers of the Church, using the ordinary means of ascertaining the divine will, and enjoying the ordinary guidance and influences of His Spirit. 
Presbyterians contend that there are plain indications in the New Testament that the apostles sometimes acted in the administration of ecclesiastical affairs, not as inspired men directed by the infallible guidance of the Spirit, which they enjoyed in declaring truth and in organizing the Church, but simply as ordinary office-bearers in cooperation with other elders, and more especially that they acted in this capacity merely in this case. And Congregationalists, not absolutely denying and yet not prepared to admit that they never acted in the administration of ecclesiastical affairs without infallible guidance, strenuously contend that in this case they acted under the influence of immediate supernatural inspiration, which infallibly guided them to a right decision, and that therefore it affords no model or precedent for the Church in future times. It seems very manifest from the whole scope and strain of the narrative that the Apostles did not act here as inspired and infallible men, but simply as ordinary ecclesiastical office-bearers in conjunction with the elders and ordinary pastors. Had it been the purpose of God to settle the controversy which arose about the necessity of circumcision by an inspired and fallible decision, the Apostles might have at once decided it without meeting and without discussion of any kind or any one of them might have done so in the exercise of his apostolic authority and confirmed his decision by the signs of an apostle. Paul himself might have done so at Antioch, without the matter being brought up to Jerusalem at all. This was not done. The matter was brought up to the church at Jerusalem. The apostles and elders assembled to deliberate upon it publicly in the presence of the people, and we are expressly told that much disputing took place regarding it when they were assembled to decide it. The apostles who took part in the discussion, in place of at once declaring authoritatively what was the mind and will of God regarding it, formally argued the question upon grounds derived at once from God's providential dealings and from statements of Scripture. In this way and by this process, they carried conviction to the understandings of all who heard them, so that they concurred at length in a unanimous decision. Here everything plainly indicates, and seems to have been obviously intended to indicate, that inspiration was not an exercise but that the matter was decided by means accessible to men in general under the ordinary guidance of the Spirit. There is no evidence, indeed, and the Congregationalists found much on this consideration, that any of the Apostles were, even at the first, of a different mind from that in which the whole assembly ultimately concurred, or that they had any disputing among themselves. But it is certain, and this is sufficient toward our conclusion, that there was much disputing, i.e., argument on opposite sides, in the assembly in their presence, that they did not put an end to this disputing by an immediate and infallible declaration of the mind of God upon the point, in the exercise of their apostolic authority, but by ordinary arguments derived from admitted principles and addressed to the understandings of those who heard them. The only thing that appears to contradict the conclusion to which the whole scope and strain of the narrative obviously points is the fact that the decision to which the assembly ultimately came is announced in these words, quote, It seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us, unquote. Now this statement certainly implies that they were confident that the decision was de facto in accordance with the mind of the Holy Ghost, but it does not necessarily imply more than this, and therefore it should not be held to imply more, as it would then contradict the general scope and strain of the narrative, which are plainly fitted to teach us that Christ, the head of the Church, determined the disposal of this matter, not by direct and infallible inspiration, but by a general meeting of apostles and elders seeking and attaining the truth upon the point, by means accessible to men in general with the ordinary influences of the Spirit. Not only does the expression, It seemeth good to the Holy Ghost and to us, not necessarily imply more than the certain accordance de facto between the decision given by them and the mind of the Spirit, but it seems of itself to indicate that there was something in the case different from a mere declaration of what they knew simply as inspired men. 
it seems much more natural that if they had been simply declaring what they had been miraculously and supernaturally taught upon the point by the Spirit, they would have said only, It seemeth good to the Holy Ghost. The addition, and to us, having the appearance of intimating that they did not act in the matter merely and solely as the inspired declarers of his mind, though confident that their decision was accordant with his. We hold it, then, to be clear, that the apostles ordinarily had the gift of supernatural, infallible inspiration in the discharge of their public duties, in declaring the truth and in organizing the church. Yet on this occasion they did not, in point of fact, exercise this gift, but left it, as it were, in obeyance, and acted in the matter just as uninspired men might and could have done. Now these two facts taken in combination not only prove that this transaction may afford a pattern and precedent for the proceedings of the church ordinarily in similar circumstances, but also warrant us to believe that it was expressly arranged in this way for that very purpose, and that therefore it is the church's duty to apply it for the regulation of her conduct. We assume now, then, that the view generally taken by Congregationalists as to this controversy having been decided by a supernatural exercise of infallible inspiration is erroneous. We assume that the whole transaction must have been intended and fitted to convey instruction to the Church as to the management of its affairs, and that these affairs are to be managed by what is revealed in Scripture as Presbyterian Church government. That last phrase being added by the editor. Other Stillwater's Revival Books Classics Messiah the Prince or the Mediatorial Dominion of Jesus Christ by William Symington Christ's Second Coming, Will It Be Premillennial? by David Brown The Marrow of Modern Divinity by Edward Fisher and Thomas Boston Revival Review is published by Stillwater's Revival Books. It is dedicated to the proclamation of the crown rights of King Jesus and to the promulgation as the waters cover the sea, Isaiah 11.9, of historic Christianity. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God, 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.